0: Hey everybody and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm Taylor Rockwell and tonight I'm going to be joined by Paul Tenorio of The Athletic. Uh, He's on the line to help me make sense of the USA's 1-1 draw with Uruguay. Uh, Was it good? Was it bad? Who did well? Who did the opposite of well? Does any of it even matter? Uh, All that plus a dual national conversation that I found particularly interesting as well as Paul making sense of Berhalter's uh, Mexico press conference which is useful because Paul was there and also appears to have been the one or one of the ones who asked the question that annoyed Greg Berhalter so I appreciate his perspective on that one. Uh, As you have no doubt already noticed, Daryl Grove is not with me in studio. Uh, He is not just being extra quiet, though I sort of wish that were the case. Basically, and don't worry, things are okay, Uh, but Daryl is in the hospital. Uh, It's not directly related to his treatment or the cancer itself, but it was an unexpected hospitalization, which is why you haven't heard as much from him this week. Normally, he tries to keep uh, everybody updated with what's going on, give listeners advance notice. In this this case, he wasn't able to do so. To his credit, I think he absolutely would record remotely uh, through a fair amount of pain uh, from his hospital bed, but that seemed slightly unnecessary, and also I felt like maybe I could just talk to Paul and Daryl could sleep. That would be fine. Uh, so instead, he's going to get better. I'm going to talk to Paul tonight. We're scheduled to have a few more guests on the program this week to discuss the U.S. men's national team as well as maybe looming end of MLS's regular season, the start of the playoffs. Maybe some international roundup. We shall see. Monday, Ryan will be back with me to break down the weekend's action, uh, and then Daryl should be with us on Tuesday's show as usual so with all that said let's get to my conversation with Paul Tenorio of The Athletic Paul thank you so much for joining me this evening thanks for having me always a pleasure always a pleasure and I know that you were at home watching this one while also balancing like taking care of your I'm gonna say relative newborn is that a fair way to put it
1: yeah I think so she's two months old so oh, that's definitely newborn, um, in my mind yeah she's she's got a real keen sense for when I'm working, so there's like a ninety percent
0: chance she'll start crying during
1: this pot during this pot
0: so and and does she already have like the tactical acumen to help you out? Is she aware of uh playing out of the back and uh pressing strategies and all that obviously I okay. mean
1: really all we're worried about is making her into a left footed playmaker <laughs> or a goal score as I told my wife that's where the money is so
0: that checks out. That checks out. Um, well, I, I hope she was able to provide you with some insight, and I'm hoping you'll be able to help me kind of balance the insight because obviously I do not have Daryl with me in studio this evening. Uh, so usually I do. I can ba- balance some stuff off him. And when we start recording, we tend to have an idea of how we feel about the game. I don't really have a very good feeling about this game in terms of I don't really know how to feel about it. So I'm wondering if you do, because I'm starting with kind of a general but weird question, which is essentially, was this an okay performance? And I can't tell if it was. And i'm just letting the mexico results color this a little bit or because we lost so badly and look so bad against mexico that not looking atrocious is progress in my mind and so i guess i'm wondering how you read this game
1: i think both can be true right like i think like advancing beyond what it looked like against mexico is certainly progress and i think it was also a very okay performance you know i don't think that The intensity was anywhere near the same as it was against Mexico. And I think that the U.S. created some opportunities against Uruguay. I think they had some okay moments in the game, but it wasn't something where you walk away and you say, you know, wow, that was a great performance. Or, man, they really um, dispelled the uh, sky is falling Mm -hmm. fears of post-Mexico soccer Twitter, you know. No, it was just kind of a, a blah friendly. And, you know, I, I personally am not going to walk away from that game having taken anything out of it other than like it happened.
0: Yeah, that that was kind of my biggest fear heading into this one. I talked with uh, Sam uh Sam Steschko, obviously. You know Sam. Um, for uh, for like the preview to this game. And it was sort of like my biggest fear was that we'd play against a Uruguay team that weren't so interested in pressing, weren't really going at the United States, and so maybe they would look better, but I would still have a hard time knowing if they were actually better or if it was just sort of they had more time on the ball, they were able to make a few more decisions with a little bit more time to make those decisions. And that is kind of where I am now. It's like, yeah, they looked okay, there were some good moments, but there wasn't that much pressure, so I guess we will basically have to see what happens down the road, but I guess that also leads me then to ask you about some individual players, unless there's more you wanted to say about kind of the general overall result.
1: No, I just think like, I think it's also worth remembering anytime you have a team where there are so many regulars missing, Mm -hmm. it becomes a little bit more difficult to judge, in my opinion, anything about the team, right? Because you do start looking at individuals and even, and then you have to remember within the context of those individuals' performance you know, would it be different against uh, the full lineup of the opposition or would it be different if they were playing in central midfield with Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney and, and Michael Bradley versus, you know, with the the players that were on the field tonight? So, um, you know, for that reason, it just makes it a lot harder to judge. And then so then you start to like you said, let's let's go to the individual side, because that's probably the easiest way to to break this performance down even with those caveats.
0: Well so actually I want to stick with the caveat for a minute there and then we'll go to individuals because for you personally not not even as a journalist but just for you as a i'm going to assume fan of the u.s national team like how do you sort of like come away from these games are there things you try to hold on to like oh i really enjoyed this player's performance and i want to see what they do next time or is it just sort of a more general like that game was okay we know some general stuff we worked on we know some general tactics and i want to see how that evolves like do you look at it as the tactics and how they're evolving the players and how they're evolving uh or something else entirely
1: yeah, I, I think I look for, a lot of times I'll look for guys who clearly show that they are not worthy of being with the national team. Okay. I think that can stand out in games like this more than anything else. You know, like, like let's look at tonight, for example, and say, okay, like, Josh Sargent was okay. You know, he wasn't bad. He had some good moments. I'm sure we'll see plenty of all-touch videos of how great he was and how much better he is than Jossie, and... You know, same with Jackson Yule and people will hype them up based on this performance in this game that we know and we just acknowledged was at a significantly different and lesser tempo than the Mexico game um, and lesser stakes in the Mexico game. Did we really pull that match out much out of this game about what Josh Sargent can do in a game against Mexico? Probably not. Like I would probably look at what he did in his cameo against Mexico more than I did tonight. That being said, you know, do you start to look at, you know, Jackson Ewell is maybe a better example of like, okay, did he acquit himself well enough to be involved in future camps? Um, And yeah, I think he did. You know, I think he was good enough to say, okay, he's in the mix at a position where you've got, you know, Weston McKinney and you've got Tyler Adams and you've got Sebastian Leggett and you've got theoretically Darlington Nagby at some point, potentially, and you've got you know all of these different central midfield options. Could Jackson you will be one of them in the future? Yeah, I think he could. And and so those are the things you start to pull out of this game. And and honestly, like I I don't know how many more people I I walked away from tonight being like, okay, you know, like I I got something out of this performance where. I'm I'm nixing them from national team calls or I got something from this performance where they have to be there they have to be involved the next time around
0: so I think the only one that I really felt that strongly about was maybe Sebastian Legette because it did seem like he was very good in his decision making on the ball again albeit against a team that weren't pressing and putting him under that much pressure I did like what I saw from Jackson Ewell and I think I put him in that category of a player that like did okay given the kind of time and space he was offered especially in those first 20 minutes Uh, so I wouldn't seeing him uh, more as the kind of situation progresses. I'm wondering where you are on Christian Roldan, though, because we've criticized him for being slow in possession, for making unforced errors. I saw a decent amount of that from him tonight. Uh, I saw other people on Twitter, you know, great assault there, uh, praising him for his like defensive work rate and for making good defensive plays and having good positioning. Uh, but for me, that's that's still not quite enough. I still have him on the list of players that I am maybe OK with not seeing that much more of in a U.S. jersey anymore. Uh, where are you on Christian Roldan?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Christian, I, I think that sums him up pretty well. Look, I think Christian, Christian Rodan's like a, a good domestic MLS player. And I think when you look at the position that he plays and the people that are ahead of him on the depth chart, he is where he should be. You know, like he is an option that you get to after you've run through, frankly, what, six or seven other options at that position. True. Yeah. Um, and and. Yeah. I mean, that's how I, I, how I kind of feel about him. I mean, he's not going to be at least to this point, he has not proven that he can execute it at the international level. And he's an example of a player and this might put me on a diatribe a little bit, but like, I, yeah, I just feel like there are certain players in major league soccer who hit ceilings and The league is still at a point where when those players hit a ceiling, the only place they can go to get better and to challenge themselves to the next level where they can be difference makers on the international level is, is Europe. Mm -hmm. And Tyler Adams is a great example of this. You know, I think Tyler Adams had absolutely hit his ceiling at the end of last year. He had to move on and he did, and he's going to continue to grow and get better in Germany. And I think Christian Roldan is actually a very good Major League Soccer player and an absolutely like a a difference maker to a certain extent, you know, considering his role with Seattle. And I think he would be. He would really benefit from moving to Europe if there was a team that was a suitor and if if the right offer came around. Now, is he going to get paid to the same level he's getting paid in Seattle? I don't know. I would. Say Probably not. Are there going to be teams in Europe that are going to pay good money for him? Enough for Seattle to sell? I don't know. Probably not. But is he the type of player who I think could stay in the mix if he went to the right situation in Europe and challenged himself at the next level? Yes, I I do think he still has room to get better.
0: I am genuinely relieved to hear you say that because I was like 100% having this exact conversation with myself earlier tonight about like, should he go abroad? And then I was thinking, but am I just being that person who just assumes that going abroad is the better move? And I think I'm still somewhere in between. So it's nice to hear that you think, uh, Roldan, maybe could use that move to kind of up that game a little bit more. Are there any other... And can I say something yeah, yeah, real quick with, with what you mentioned about mm-hmm. Um That's exactly what I, I was thought- about to ask about. So I'm glad I'm glad you brought so him there
1: up. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> legit. The Jets' performance against Mexico, to me, was the brightest spot to come out of anything that's happened in this international window, period. He was the only player in that game against Mexico who was willing and able to receive the ball under pressure, um, turn under that pressure, and make the right decision and the right pass um, with that pressure. And his ability to do that in the Mexico game changed things for the U.S. I'm not saying it swayed the game or it turned the game, but it was a noticeable difference when he was on the field. Uh, and he provided the pass that led to the penalty kick, and he was doing things that no one else was doing on the field. So the hard part for Sebastian Lejet is that injuries have always gotten in the way of any progress he's made. But every time, I think, almost every time he stepped on the field with the U.S. national team, he has shown that he is a quality player on the international level. And I think he showed that again against Mexico. I I rank that cameo much more than even tonight. And I think that I I hope that he continues to get opportunities with Berhalter's team. And I hope that, you know, he continues to evolve as a player with the LA galaxy. I'm very interested to see where the galaxy go with their team, you know, potentially in the post Latan era next season. But you know, I think Sebastian Legette should be
0: a centerpiece of it. So you'd rather him stay and continue to develop there as opposed to maybe also look for a move abroad? I think I just think his injury history would probably be
1: disqualifying to a, that. That being said, he is out of contract with the Galaxy. Um, so, yeah, he could be primed for a move abroad. But I, I just think that, you know, he's the type of player where. Every time we've seen him on the international level, he's he's looked the part. And I think he's somebody who will absolutely be... I think he'll be the guy, a guy who surprises and is constantly fighting for a starting role under Greg Berhalter.
0: All right. Uh, I like that. I also uh, want to talk about a little more Seattle for a moment because I want to talk Jordan Morris. Uh, Kim McCauley tweeted tonight something to the effect of basically like if Jordan Morris were a draft pick from Indiana instead of Klinsman's chosen one who didn't quite, quite reach that level, he would be beloved. And I had never really thought of it like that. But now I'm kind of obsessed with this idea because I do think part of my frustration with Jordan Morris comes from him sort of being anointed by Jürgen Klinsman and feeling like he was just kind of in there regardless of his performances, and I haven't felt like he developed very much in this international window, and I think maybe it's because I, I haven't paid as much attention to Seattle in their sort of season so far, or like this season as it's coming to an end uh, in terms of regular season, um, I, I've been really impressed by what I've seen from him in terms of a few little adjustments to his game, especially his ability to use his left foot and his willingness to use his left foot is that something that has kind of been a consistent narrative for him this season that he has been developing and kind of rounding out his game or do you put him in the category of players who were going up against a Uruguay team that maybe weren't as inclined to try that hard to defend that hard and so he looked better as a result
1: no I think I think Jordan Morris has had a pretty good run here with Greg Berhalter's national team like I, I thought he had a pretty good gold cup as well he ended up beating Tyler Boyd out for a starting job down the stretch for the men's national team. He's the type of player who I think you know we talk about, and I think there's a worthwhile debate about how much can a national team coach improve a player uh, or develop a player. And I think Greg Berhalter is a coach who has shown with the right wingers, he can teach them things about spacing and runs that change their game. And we've seen that with the way that players like Ethan Finley and Justin Marum have been elevated under Burhalter and in, in that system, and I think I, I think Jordan Morris is benefiting from it. I think he's benefiting in the system. I, I do think that he is growing as a player. Remember, he obviously had a major major injury that he's coming off of, and you know he's he's still. I'm not saying he's a young player, but as a professional, he still doesn't have the the greatest sample size. And, and so I, I think it's natural to expect an evolution from him as a player. And, you know, I do think he's had a, a good run of form with the national team and with the Sounders this season.
0: More still to come from my conversation with Paul Tenorio of The Athletic, who is doing a great job of giving excellent answers without waking up his two-month-old. Credit to Paul for that. But before we can get back to Paul, I did want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Manscaped, who is number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. They offer you precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. That includes the redesigned electric trimmer, their Lawnmower 2.0, which has proprietary skin-safe technology, so it won't nick or snag, and it will keep everything well-groomed, orderly, and uh, and playable, which is my way of saying that the field in St. Louis maybe could have used some electric trimmers. Maybe if it had got a bit more attention, it had been groomed evenly, you didn't have an obvious infield area that maybe didn't get as much effort as the other areas, things would have been slightly more playable, maybe the game would have looked a little bit better, maybe the United States would have scored, uh, and maybe that could help you as well. So uh, if you are looking to, you know, keep the downstairs parts a bit more groomed, than Manscaped has you covered. Um, and you can get 20% off plus free shipping with the code TSS at manscaped.com. Uh, one more time. If you use the code TSS at manscaped.com, uh, you can get 20% off plus free shipping. Uh, so remember folks always use the right tools for the job. The groundskeepers, uh, in St. Louis maybe could have done that and things would have worked out better. Uh, don't make that mistake. Always use the right tools for your downstairs bits. Uh, thank you very much to manscaped for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, We very much appreciate it. Now back to my conversation with Mr. Paul Tenorio. Uh, You mentioned Tyler Boyd earlier. Uh, He also played tonight. My question for you about Tyler Boyd is, what happened to Tyler Boyd? Because there was a period of time where I thought he was going to be a very good player for the U.S. Admittedly, it was 45 minutes in the Gold Cup or maybe pre-Gold Cup. Uh, But since then, uh, he has had the downturn in form. He was replaced by Jordan Morris. At the time, I was very confused by that when it happened in the Gold Cup. Uh, After tonight... I am less confused by that, but I'm more confused by what has happened to his form and why he looks uh, pretty ineffective in a U.S. jersey. Yeah, I've been a little bit
1: surprised by it as well. I thought he had a really bright start to his time with the national team, and I think what stood out about him was his confidence and his willingness to take players on and, and create in the final third. He was dangerous. He was always looking to run past players, get balls into the box, look for shots, and I think he's kind of pulled back on that a little bit. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's a confidence thing. You know, I don't know if if what Berhalter didn't like in the Gold Cup was that he was doing that so often that it was taking away from some of the pattern movements that Berhalter is working on. And now Boyd is playing kind of with a little bit less freedom to, to go at people, which is one of his strengths. I'm not sure that that's it. I don't I just feel like that energy that he brought when he first came to the national team is it's not there right it's just mm-hmm. not there and um you know Burhalter's gonna have to find a way to unlock that i mean he's playing at a big club he certainly has the ability to make a difference in the final third and i think this u.s pool overall lacks players that can do that i mean honestly there's probably two players in this pool who i think can square up a defender one-on-one and beat them and score goals that's proven it on the international stage and it's Christian Pulisic and Josie Altidore, and that's it. And that's not even Josie's strength. So, you know, to have a, a winger who can go at defenders, beat them one on one, and and create in the final third is is critical. And I think. You know, he—he's Tyler Boyd is, is definitely somebody that you know they need more out of, and they've got to figure out a way to get him playing to his strengths again.
0: Uh, I know you're talking about wingers there, uh, but is that something that you'd also like to see from Josh Sargent? Because I've, I found his movement off the ball, his willingness to drop better than they make runs in behind, I liked a lot of what I saw in terms of his movement. It sounds like you weren't quite as impressed, or at least not as impressed to like anoint him the obvious starter, definitely ahead of Jossie Zardes by some distance. So what are the things that you think Josh Sargent needs to work on? On, at least for you personally, to be sort of a more guaranteed selection that you expect big things from? Well,
1: I think Josh's movement and his ability to combine, is, are those are his strengths. Those are his biggest strengths. And, you know, continuing to do those things and to execute them on the international level is the most important thing he can do. And he's just going to have to keep getting playing time both with his club and, and with the with the U.S., getting his chances and trying to take advantage of them. I will say there's absolutely nothing I've seen this summer at the Gold Cup or in any of the other windows that would indicate to me that either Josie Zardes or Josh Sargent is above, in front of, or close to, at this point, the level of Josie Altidore as mm-hmm. the top striker in the U.S. pool. I don't know why Josie didn't feature as much, for Greg Berhalter in the Gold Cup I actually you know would have loved to dive into that a little bit more you know toward the end of that tournament I ended up leaving the road because I had a baby or I didn't have a baby my wife had a baby um and but I, I just still you know with all of the evidence that we've seen in these games to me it's a no-brainer no doubter that Josie Altidore is the best and most effective forward in the pool and um Josh Sargent to me is is um the player that I would be playing when Josie's not on the field just to develop him and to keep pushing him forward. Um but I, I, I think it's it's not close right now. I I just think Josie's Josie's the guy when he's healthy.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and make you uh, even less popular then. Do you feel the same about Michael Bradley playing as that number six? Do you think that's his spot until somebody else can really come in and show that they deserve it? Or do you think maybe it's him keeping it warm until, say, Tyler Adams is fit and ready to play?
1: Well, that's the question, right? And I asked that of Greg Burhalter before this window started, is he willing to change the way he plays and not have that passing number six, right? Like the guy who can kind of dictate the game and and Greg essentially said he believes the the player who can play that diagonal ball that breaks the lines and creates opportunities and what he credited with creating a number of goals of the gold cup is critical to the way they play. So, as long as he believes that then yes, Michael Bradley is the best in this pool at doing it. Do I think that's the long-term solution? No, obviously not. It can't be. Michael Bradley's 32 years old. Would I like to see a Tyler Adams Weston McKenney six eight pairing at some point in these friendlies? Absolutely. Now Tyler Adams has been hurt, so that's disqualifying. Like a game like this would have been a perfect opportunity where you can work on something like that. Um, but as long as Greg's gonna try this system where you have, have a six that sits in and, and is and passing is such an important part of it, receiving the ball under pressure dropping it into, into the, the back line to get the ball from the goalkeeper and make the right decision in your defensive third. Yeah, Michael Bradley is still going to be the guy. I, I just don't know if when you look at the the pool and when you look at the strengths of the team, I don't know that you can go away I, I don't know that you can go through this next couple years ahead of qualifying without at least trying a an Adams McKenney pairing with, you know, Legette in front of them and Pulisic and you know, pick your other winger: Boyd, Morris, Yedlin, uh, Weah
0: on the outsides, and Josie up top. And then moving further back, who do you who would you like to see as your sort of consistent center backs? Uh, I'm assuming John Brooks would be the answer if ever he were actually healthy. I'm not sure that's actually physically possible for him to be consistently healthy. So, if the United States is say playing a a must win or a very important World Cup qualifier, who would you like to see as the two or possibly three center backs uh, starting for the defense?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's got to be Brooks and Long. I think that's the pairing that is the ideal pairing
0: back there for the U.S. right now. So why? Yeah, you're about to answer, so never mind. I don't well, need to ask why.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I just think right now passing ability is really important out of the back, right? And John Brooks is the best on-the-ball center back in this pool. And, you know, ability and athleticism to defend 1v1 in space, that's Aaron Long's biggest strength. John Brooks also very good at that. And so for me, that's the safest pairing. Um, you know, you look at other options. Walker Zimmerman has struggled over his last few appearances. Uh, Miles Robinson has a long way to go with the ball at his feet. Very athletic, very good in space, 1v1, not so good on the ball. And he'll continue to get better. He's still uh, an inexperienced center back. Um, you know, th- so, so when you start to kind of knock those guys off, um, based on kind of the, the, the needs, the biggest needs there, then, you know, I think those are the two that stand out. Now, do you play three in the back? If you do, you know, is Tim Ream the left footed center back on the left side? Do you, um, do you go with a guy like, you know, Walker Zimmerman in between, um, Brooks and Long or something to that effect? Maybe, maybe you mess around, but if it's going to be two, it's, to me, it's Brooks and Long. And then, you know, I still think I think Reggie Cannon has proved himself to be um, an international quality right back and a young player with a bright future. So, you know, until Yedlin comes in, if you're going to play that vertical right back, I think right now Reggie Cannon has the has the lead in that department. And then the left left back is still a big question. I mean, Serginio Dest came in with a lot of hype. He learned some lessons in this international window. You know, he he got burned. For a goal against Mexico. He got burned again tonight. And that's okay. He's a young player. I don't think for me it was as bad as, like, say, Anthony Robinson, who I thought struggled and was one of the worst players on the field every time he played for the U.S. You know, I think Dest showed more positives than Anthony Robinson did. But, you know, I think if you were to go, if I were to say, okay, we're going to Costa Rica to play. At you know, unfortunately, they don't play at a anymore. They play at that awful national stadium. But like, oh, yeah, you know, would I put Serginho Dest in the lineup versus Tim Ream? Probably not. If you're at home against, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, Trinidad, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you you can afford to go with Dest and someone who's a little bit weaker defensively. Mm-hmm. That position's still in flux for me. That's still the biggest question mark. Kind of, you look at left back, you look at winger. Those are the areas where I think the U.S. still has a lot of questions.
0: And then Dest's national team eligibility is sort of still in flux. Uh, Much has been made of the fact that he could still be called up by the Netherlands. There are the Nations League games coming up in October. Based on what he has said, what you've heard so far, what are the chances he's playing for the United States in October versus, say, picks up a phantom injury and has to miss those games?
1: Yeah, I I would say low, right? I would say it's a low chance that he accepts the call up in October. He certainly doesn't seem to have made up his mind about what he wants to do. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal to make that choice. You know, I've written about dual nationals since 2007, when I first started at the Washington Post. And I remember, you know, it's something that kind of feels close to my heart. My dad is Costa Rican, my mom is American. And when you grow up in a household like that, there are polls to both countries. Obviously, you are inherently, you are both Costa Rican and American. You don't feel more one or the other. And it's hard to describe, say, oh, Paul, you're definitely more American than Costa Rican. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't have just as much love in my heart for Costa Rica and, and a, a real poll for my entire family. Hundreds of Tenorios in Costa Rica that I, you know, still stay in touch with and talk to and, you know, c- you know, keep up with, with them via all these, you know, WhatsApp group chats and all this other stuff, right? Like you have family there and you have history there and it's a part of who you are. And it, and so it became, it is a deeply personal thing that I've written about for a long time. And I just think that we make, it's so easy to lump all these dual nationals together and just call them dual nationals. And it's so easy to break it down and be like, oh, it's about when the U.S. is calling and I can't believe the Mexican Federation called and they haven't heard a word from Burr Halter in three weeks since they got back. It doesn't matter that they've been called up to the U-20 World Cup and played in the U-20 and U-17 World Cup. Like, Of course it does, right? All those things matter. And at the end of the day, it's going to come down to somebody who says, like, I want to do this or I want to do that. And maybe it's because they identify one more than the other. Maybe it's because they just feel more comfortable with one or the other. Maybe it's because they've always dreamed of playing for one and not the other. Maybe it's because of what their house was like that they grew up in. We put so much pressure on these decisions as though they are decisions that are reflective of the federation and the organization or even the standing of the team. I've seen people saying like, oh, based on these last two performances of the team, there's no doubt that Dess is going to choose Holland and I don't blame him. Like, get, Like, it's so short-sighted it's so selfish to think of things that way it's such an incredibly personal decision and i hope the kid takes his time to figure out what he really wants and does it for the right reasons and you know i hope that both fan bases give him the chance and the time to do it that way to do it the way that 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 makes him most comfortable
0: my question for you like this is kind of an absurd question, but it's also I, I, we, we tend to have absurd question conversations around this time when we're together uh, alcohol is generally more involved than it is right now um, <laughs> but like if you like Paul can play I've played against Paul like if you were caught up right now by Costa Rica and the United States like what would go into that decision for you because I am not a dual national Daryl is but he doesn't count because he would choose England every time uh, I'm wondering like what it would be for you like ha- like what factors would contribute would you have to talk talk to the family? Or do you think it would be more of a gut choice for you personally?
1: Yeah, for I mean, like, if I were ever when I grew up, and I used to think about this all the time, like, it was always about like, what your gut feeling is, you know, but but, you know, I can remember talking about it with my dad, like dreaming of it ever happening. And like, feeling that pull of wanting my dad to feel proud of me, right of wanting the idea of wearing a Costa Rica in Jersey and representing my dad and his family like that. As, you know, and I was a kid. Right. And you you think about you think about your validation in the eyes of, of family members as much as you do in, in what makes you happiest um, at the same time, like I think for for myself and for a lot of people who are dual nationals or who have kind of are products of people who who came to this country looking for better opportunity, you know, there is an element of pride that comes in representing the United States in anything that you do or in any accomplishment that you have in this country, because, you know, my dad came here without an education, you know, worked blue collar job seven days a week, and he didn't do that for himself. Right. Like he didn't want to work seven days a week. He didn't. He had to because he had a family. And that work that he put in allowed me to go to a great college and start a great career and do awesome things. And same for all my siblings. And so our accomplishments are reflective of that American dream, quote unquote. And so you know all those things factor in. And and yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's an emotional decision and it's a personal decision and it's an I. It's a decision that's as tied to personal identity as anything else and I think the influences are different for every every person. For me, it probably would have been easier to choose the United States because I grew up in a house where, you know, the US was just as present in my um identity as Costa Rica was. You know, for a lot of these kids from Mexico where, like, for example, I went to Efra's house, uh, Efra and Alvarez in in L.A. When I wrote a feature about him, I sat down in his living room with his parents and, you know, I saw his bedroom and I went around his house and I, I got a really good feel. And I did the interview with his parents. Both of them are fluent Spanish speakers. You know, that house was a quintessential Mexican family and. You know, he, his father spoke to me about the pride that he would feel of his son wearing either uniform, that he wasn't pushing him one way or the other, that he would feel and has felt just as proud seeing Ephra in a U.S. youth national team jersey as he did wearing El Tri, the the colors of El Tri. But that being said, you know, Ephra grew up in a house where the Mexican national team was the team that they rooted for. And of course, that ties into your identity. Of course, that becomes a part of who you are, just like it does for all of us in sports when you grow up rooting for a team. And and so until you go through all of those different situations, I think it's impossible to really know what's going through someone's mind or why they're making a decision. We've seen players like John Brooks talk about, you know, they chose the U.S. because of the connection it makes them feel to their family in the in the States that they've long wanted to feel a closer co- connection to. And you know, we've seen other players who have made decisions based on the fact that, like, realistically, they're not going to get called up by the other country. So, you know, I just think the most important thing from my perspective is I'm always very careful in how I try to talk about and frame these discussions. And I've I've not always been perfect at it. Like in the days of social media, media I'm sure you can dig up something that makes me look bad talking about like a German dual national or something. But like. I really try to be careful how I write about it and how I talk about it and how I think about it because ultimately it's it's going to be an incredibly individual decision and it's going to be a really personal one and I think um I think that it's it's been cheapened a little bit by the social media world that we live in.
0: So that's genuinely all very fascinating and I really appreciate you sharing that because again it's not a perspective I have or can have but it also was interesting to me just then that with all of that everything you said you didn't really mention results you didn't really mention like is the team good right now and I'm wondering like do you think that that's not necessarily a thing that factors into it because I think a lot of times maybe to your point about Twitter like that is a thing that people get worried about it's like oh the US looks bad they're not scoring goals meanwhile the Netherlands are beating Germany there's a huge atmosphere everybody's up for it you know in these games you're not selling as many tickets the crowd's not as into it then you're losing you're not looking that good so we maybe do you you feel like there's like a tendency to overrate the current form of the national teams when pondering the future of dual nationals
1: yes and no i mean sure that could sway somebody but like couldn't the u.s fans be rooting for the netherlands to be unbelievable you know to a point where mm-hmm. they're like yeah serginio des is not good enough to play oh,
0: I see. for the <laughs> netherlands you
1: know what i mean like That's if they're point. incredible that they're looking at him like yeah you know what we don't really need him whereas the u.s is saying to him Greg Berhalter yeah. is saying to him, we see you as an important part of our team. You know, of course that can factor in. And, and you know, you better believe that the idea of like, okay, someone like Julian Green, for example, like, I can go play in a World Cup. You know, that opportunity was not likely to happen for Germany. You know, for for Julian Green to break into the German national team in time to play at the 2014 World Cup. Um a lot of people could argue he wasn't ready to break into the US team for the, the 2014 World Cup, but we'll put that aside. So, you know, yeah, those things can factor in, sure. But I think that, you know, I don't think it's, I, I think it could be like a tiebreaker more than anything else, you know, because then how, it, like, like we just went through, how do you weight everything, you know? If Serginho's looking, oh my God, the Netherlands are really good, I would love to play for them but they're really good, am I ever going to get a call-up if I don't accept the U.S. and I'm frozen out of their picture? You know, now I have no national team. You know, we don't know. There's no way to predict that, and I think it's very difficult for players to predict that.
0: All right. Uh, I I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Have you got time for a couple more questions? Sure. All right, cool. Uh, And they really, like, these are more so... Paul the journalist questions because I, I I need your perspective on these things. Uh, there was a little bit of headlines relating to Pax and Palma call today. Uh, he did an interview with MLSsoccer.com. Uh, the quote that came out of that was, uh, we do have youth, but at the same time, we have youth that's playing at a high level. Uh, Josh, he's talking about Josh Sargent, is getting Bundesliga minutes as opposed to a 28-year-old who might be playing in a league uh, not on that high of a level. Whether you're 20 or 28, if you do the job, then you deserve the opportunity. Uh, the way that has been interpreted is that he was taking a veiled slash not so veiled shot at maybe Giassi Zardes, who happens to be twenty eight years old? You are like very familiar with the world of like kind of quotes on the fly and players kind of speaking their mind, but maybe like quotes getting taken out of context, or maybe a player just doesn't mean it. Paxton Pommacal is obviously very young, so I'm wondering like how do you interpret that quote? Is that Pommacal throwing a little bit of shade, or do you think he just like accidentally threw out the age of Giassi Zardes without meaning to?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would think that certainly—I would guess that he probably threw out the age without meaning to single Jossie out, but I think he knew that the idea was such that he was basically saying that Josh deserved an opportunity over certain other players. Uh, That being said, I mean, Paxton Pomey call— is getting called into camp based on his form in the same league that Jossie Zardes plays in. So (laughs) I don't necessarily think that it was like a direct shot at Jossie Zardes and what he's accomplished because also Jossie Zardes has accomplished more in Major League Soccer than Pax and Call has to this point. And I will say people have to be really careful about – who they're reading and how they're reading things when it comes to quotes. Because, like you know, just today on Twitter, and I don't even remember who tweeted it or what it was, but I saw somebody taking out of context a quote from Christian Pulisic at, from the mix zone mm-hmm. after the game against Mexico, where he was talking about how it's the hardest thing in the world. And they tried to make that centered around specifically Greg Berhalter's system. And it's an indictment of what Greg is trying to do. And in reality, he was talking about installing a system into a national team in general, not mm-hmm. just Greg's system. And it was tweeted by somebody who wasn't there, who's never spoken to a player before. And so, yeah, like to me, you've got to be careful using quotes where you're when you're not the person doing the interview. You know, and I also think, you know, obviously that quote was, was going to be – that was it. And I do think Paxton probably knew exactly what he was saying and exactly how it would be taken. Um, but, you know, I, I think the idea that it's like a shot at somebody or an insult mm-hmm. to somebody specifically is less so considering, like I said before, they play in the same league. Yeah.
0: yeah, that makes sense. And I think also the way I've seen it kind of retweeted and shared, they leave out the part where he says, whether you're 20 or 28, if you do the job, then you deserve the opportunity. So, yes, I take your point that you've got to make sure you read the whole thing and know exactly what's being said. Um, but that... With that in mind, uh, I am still sort of obsessed with Greg Berhalter's press conference after the loss to Mexico. Uh, you wrote a, a great piece about this for The Athletic. Um, I think to quote you directly, you said Berhalter pointed out several times the US's, uh, the U.S.'s improvement in sticking with their style of play against Mexico, unlike the Gold Cup final, where they reverted to a more direct long ball system. Um, did you get an idea of why he thinks that's a positive? Because to me, that seems like losing... I don't like rock, paper, scissors, like 40 times in a row because you keep throwing scissors. But then if you're asked about it afterwards, you're like, yeah, I stuck with my plan. Even though it didn't work, we kept doing the plan and and we're proud of that. Like, I I genuinely don't understand his logic. And you are, I, I think, a more logical person than I am. So I'm wondering if you can kind of break that one down for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that Greg, I think if you pair that quote or that idea with what Greg said to me after the Jamaica game, you know, ahead of the Gold Cup, where he was talking about how he doesn't understand how you can take a result in a friendly against Jamaica and get upset about it, Mm -hmm. that there are things that you try in friendlies that provide you data points and they provide you information that become useful when the games really matter. And that if you don't use those opportunities to try things and to try different players at the potential, you know, sacrificing of results, not that you aim to sacrifice the results, but that that might end up being one of the results of trying things, then, you know, what are, what are you doing? What, what does it matter? Like no one, the way he put it was like, who is going to ever remember what your result is against Jamaica in a pre gold cup friendly. Like what, what does that matter? And I think Greg kind of approached the Mexico friendly the same way in that, like the point was, let's do this, right? Let's, let's play out of the back and not give up. And yeah, we're going to make mistakes but we're going to show that we can do it, that we can um, play through the pressure, and that we can take some positives out of that. And and that confidence from a coach to tell you to do that and to say it's okay to make mistakes will pay pay off down the road. Maybe not in this game, but somewhere down the road, that confidence will continue to grow, right, and continue to grow, and the U.S. will get better at it and better at it. And there will be a payoff, you know, at some date in the future. And Greg Berhalter really believes that. And I think it, you know, he's not the only coach to talk about it. I mean, I think Felipe Cardenas wrote a story, I believe, or, you know, somebody about Atlanta United, Michael Parkhurst, Jeff Laurentiewicz, were talking about the early days under Tata and how Tata in training was insistent that they play out of the back, that they take those risks and then you know, we're, you're going to make mistakes, he told them, and I don't care. Like, that's what you have to do to play the way I want to play. And they talked about how that message and training became a really important one for them to understand that, that when a coach is okay with you making mistakes in order to get better at what he wants to do, it gives you the confidence to do those things. And I think that's where Greg Berhalter is coming from. Now, as I wrote in my column, it becomes a much more difficult sell when it's against Mexico. And I think that Greg Berhalter should have recognized that when you're playing against your biggest friendly, even if you're still going to stick by that mantra of, of let's try things and let's be okay with the mistakes and know that these mistakes are in sacrifice toward a better result down the road, you cannot Come into a press conference after a three nothing loss to your biggest rival and and be positive and, you know, relentlessly positive, even if you, you know, the. We got to think about who a coach is talking to, right, like. Coaches use press to send messages to different people. Some coaches use the press to send messages to fans. Some coaches use press to send messages to their players, some to their bosses. And I think Greg Berhalter was trying to reinforce everything he told the team in the post-game press conference and have them see that he was standing behind them and saying, this is what I wanted to do. I'm proud of them for doing it. What he forgot is, and what I think is getting undervalued within U.S. soccer is Greg Berhalter is not working in a vacuum. And he didn't inherit a team that was coming off of a quarterfinal World Cup run. And he's got like, this nice cushion off of which to work. He inherited a team that missed a world cup um, out of a federation that took over a year to hire him with a fan base that has no patience. And if you don't recognize that and you don't respect that, and you don't treat that as an important, I don't know, important group of constituents that you have to speak to in your press conferences, then it's going to make your job harder. And I think had he paired all of the positive talks or, or the talk about why it, why they did what they did with saying, but the result wasn't acceptable, we're unhappy, things that the players said in the mix zone, I think it could have gone over and would have gone over better. Um, I don't think that the fans would have been any less angry at the result, but I think he gave them another thing to latch on to and be upset about. And And I will say, like, as much as I'm criticizing Greg Berhalter for that press conference performance, you know, I will point out that he has been incredibly transparent since day one, you know, to a level that we aren't used to with national team coaches talking about systems and positions and ideas and what he's trying to accomplish and going into really specific tactical nuances. If you ask about it and who's starting not full lineups, but you know, certain players that are starting, you know, so I'm not trying to criticize everything he's done in the in the press conferences or with with how he handles media. But I do think that there has to be that appreciation that, you know, fans aren't just going to blindly be on board with the process, even if you let them in on everything. You have to also respect that results matter a little bit more than they normally would and especially against Mexico.
0: Um you might not be able to answer this one cuz you're not Greg Burhalter but he's he's a smart guy. He's been in this position before at least from a managerial standpoint. Like why do you think he wouldn't do that? Why do you think he wouldn't come out and say like, "Yeah, this result wasn't very good and I know I'm going to sound crazy, but I did see some positives." Like why would he avoid doing that?
1: I I again, I think he was I think the press conference was more a message sent to players mm-hmm. than it was to anyone else. And okay. I think he wanted, you know, I, I believe, and I, I alluded to this in the story, everyone has narratives that they want to set. And, you know, Greg kind of, after my question, I had asked the third question of the press conference that was about the system or the players, you know, I and see, Greg you're said, the one. Well, you're I see, the one. <laughs> yeah. I see where your narrative is going, right? That was his answer. I yeah. see what your narrative is going to be and it's great he's a smart guy he can see that there are is a narrative forming right and so he said and and i think you know it was it's become kind of at times in post game a little bit back and forth with him and i just think you know i just think that a little bit more of an appreciation for the fan base is something that would provide a lot of relief and also it's something that's uniquely part of the national team job because it's a massive fan base it's much bigger than any one specific club. And when you're with a specific club, you have a natural narrative of the season, right? There is that, you know, a, a result can mean more or less depending on where you are in the season, what results came before it, what results came out directly after it, how you stand in the competition. It gets a little bit more blurry with these friendlies mm-hmm. and, you know, coming off of a goal cup where you finish second, is that a positive? Is that a negative? It's harder to do that. Um, I just think, you know, in this case, I just think he was so focused on reinforcing the ideas he wanted to reinforce to his team and to communicate to the fans, hey, this is what this is the win that we were looking for within the game. Results aside, the conviction in our system, the conviction in saying this is how we're going to play soccer going forward. That was the number one goal. And we accomplished that number one goal. Do we do it well? No, but we accomplished that goal. And you know it kind of turned into like a i don't know uh, us versus them like you guys are so negative and mm-hmm. didn't you see some of these positives and and it, it just kind of i think it just it just made it worse well made sin- made, made, made the night worse
0: that makes sense that makes sense uh, well since you antagonized him maybe you won't get that call up in october but uh if burhalter does call you up are you accepting or are you holding out for costa rica or would you prefer not to say on air
1: yeah, you're right. I mean, I think now I don't have a choice, right? <laughs> like I'm. Costa uh, Rica, you know, has like an interim coach now, so I, I have I have you a, got good a chance. chance to get yeah. in there, you know.
0: <laughs> but right. I did I did play some left back in my career, so you know, All the right. U.S. might be. We'll see. All right. Well, now I'm going to take that out of context and make up elaborate quotes about how Paul Tenorio either loves or hates the United States or Costa Rica. I'm not sure which. I'm not sure which we'll go with. But until I do that, Paul, I really appreciate you taking all the time. Uh, it is obviously late in the evening. You've got a lot going on. Uh, so I appreciate you taking all the time that you have taken to help me make sense of these friendlies and Greg Borhalter and tactics and dual nationals. Lots of stuff covered in there. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks so much, man.